This week, we talked to Teasel Muir Harmony, author, historian, and curator of the Project Apollo collection at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. Yep, we talked to her about her work at the museum as well as discussing the new book she released last year called Operation Moonglow, A Political History of Project Apollo. If you haven't done so already, come and find us on social media. We're at Space and Things One on Twitter or get involved at Space and Things Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And a special thanks to those who have hit the share button or have donated or joined our Patreon page. You really are the best. But all we want right now is for you to sit back and enjoy episode 29 of the Space and Things podcast. You're listening to the Space and Things podcast with Emily Carney and Dave Giles. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles. Hey, Emily, doesn't it seem like it's just been everyone's birthday recently? It seems like every time I go online, it's another one of the Apollo astronauts' birthdays. Uh, But I don't think I've ever, ever seen an emotional outpouring online like we have this week for Alan Bean's 89th birthday. Was it just me? Was it just me? Yeah, same here. Uh, He genuinely deserves all the appreciation he can get he's probably the best known space artist i mean there's other astronauts and there's some cosmonauts also who uh paint they all do very good work but he's probably uh the only artist i think who's been on the moon maybe well uh mike collins orbited it but Mm. alan bean used like a lot of his uh well he used a moon boot and you know some of his materials from the apollo days to sort of uh roughen up the paintings which was kind of cool and he genuinely, I, I worked with him a few times on panels and stuff, um, not Apollo related, but obviously I'm going to get pinged early in this podcast <laughs> for uh, Skylab stuff. But um, you always hear about him like, oh, yeah, he was the nicest guy. And it was that's not lip service. He was genuinely one of the warmest, most open people, like one of the friendliest astronauts you could ever meet you got the sense he genuinely enjoyed talking to fans and stuff so he deserves all the accolades he can get when he passed that was extremely painful because it was kind of the same way as when like al warden died it was like i know he was in his 80s but he wasn't done yet his passing really left a huge void especially at like um a lot of the space events like a astronaut scholarship foundation events and space fest he just brought so much joy to the room so um i know he's in heaven so I know he's uh, watching all of us. So uh, I hope he had a very great birthday. He he truly deserved everything. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, everyone I know who has, who has met him or has got a story about him only speaks so highly of him. Uh, also, his, the, the episode of From Earth to the Moon, which is Apollo 12's ep- episode, I know it's a fictional portrayal of him, but it's just adorable. And I rewatched it recently and, and uh, it's really is the Alan Bean show on that. So if you haven't seen that, please check that out. But... I really think more people would. I wish more people knew about Alan Bean in in the general population, not just in our space community, because his story, him, I just think it has such potential to connect more people to the space program and the history of the space program. Because he's just always so humble and, and gracious. Every interview you see him in, absolutely. Uh, one thing I'll add before we go uh, to the news: a few years ago, I think this was in 2014, uh, I was at an ASF event. And I was like, man, I really want to talk to Al Bean, but I'd never talked to him before. Then I want to talk to Al Bean, but I'm 
nervous. I'm scared, you know, because he's Albine, you know. So yeah. my friend's like, just go talk to him, man. He seems he's just standing over there. So I was like, okay. So I go up to him and I'm like, you know, Captain Bean, I don't know if you hear this, but my favorite picture of you is not the surveyor picture because everybody would bring him that one picture to sign of him standing next to surveyor on the ocean of storms. So I, uh, I was like, my favorite picture of you is like this. And I think I brought up on my phone the picture of him in the orbital workshop on Skylab. I'm going to get pinged again. And it was him like doing <laughs> somersaults in there. And he was like, I'm actually really happy to hear this because nobody brings that up. And it's really sad, you know, because I consider Skylab just as big of a high point in my career as I did, um, you know, Apollo 12. And around that time, Tom Hanks wrote a short story about him. Or not about him, but it was about a a, fix, a fictitious moon mission. And the sh- spaceship was called the Alan Bean. No way. I did not know about this. Yeah, I think the story is called the Alan Bean Plus 3 or something. If, if you Google it, you should be able to find it. So I asked him, I'm like, well, what was that like having Tom Hanks, you know, name check you in a in a story? And he was like, oh, I thought it was awesome, but I was a little surprised it was me. Like, that's how he was. He was genuinely, like, humbled. Like, why would he remember me? And I was like, uh, of course we remember you. You know what I'm saying? There was no attitude. There was no sense of entitlement or anything. He was just pure joy. So those are two things that I, I, oh, my God, I missed the crap out of him. (laughs) He was a wonderful guy. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, it definitely seems that way. And it would have been remiss of us not to mention him this week when there's been so much outpouring for him. So a little bit of an Albine love in there before we start. Holy crap, it's beautiful out here. It sure is. It's something else. Right. Four launches this week. We had two SpaceX Falcon 9 launches from Cape Canaveral in Florida, delivering 60 Starlink satellites each. Now, both of these Falcon 9 launches, one on March the 11th and the other on March the 14th, were successful in delivering their payloads as well as landing the first stage. The second of those launches was the first time that one of those first stages has been used nine times. Meanwhile, over in China, there were also two launches. First on March the 11th, where they successfully launched a Long March 7A rocket for the first time. Uh, It delivered a classified satellite called Cheyenne 9, which translates to experiment nine now the first attempt to fly this rocket was almost a year ago and ended in disaster when one of the engines malfunctioned shortly after the first stage separation but this year they've made it work Uh, and the very next day the china aerospace and technology corp uh, or cask which is the state-owned prime contractor for the chinese space program learned that this week uh, launched the long march 4c rocket delivering three military satellites which are set to join six others already in space doing some ocean surveillance missions all right surveilling the oceans (laughs) yeah apparently so (laughs) apparently yeah i'm like what is in the ocean okay yeah i'm afraid yeah okay well on march 13th we had uh yet another eva or spacewalk at the international space station with victor glover and mike hopkins putting on their suits and spending six hours and 47 minutes outside The task was to finish off previous maintenance jobs, which had started on the previous spacewalks, which have taken place over the last couple of months, and it appears they have managed to get everything done, which is fantastic. Uh, Victor Glover, who is a uh, rookie member of the crew, has taken part in four spacewalks on this mission, logging a total of uh, 26 hours and seven minutes outside the station. So I think it's safe to say he's no longer a rookie. Yep. (laughs) Right? (laughs) 
And um, it was also the 237th spacewalk. Wow. For assembly and maintenance of the ISS, which with a total amount of time of 62 days, three hours and 34 minutes outside. Yeah, it's just crazy numbers. It's weird, isn't it? The, the Victor Glover has spent more time outside the space uh, station than Gus Grissom with two space flights spent in space. And, and there's other astronauts that he's beats their total allotted time in space with just his spacewalk. Anyway, that just, it does blow my, blow my mind. But while we're talking about the ISS, uh, this week they discarded a 2.9 tonne pallet of used battery, uh, which will orbit the Earth for two to four years. The Energizer bunnies just going nuts up there before burning up in the atmosphere and uh, and a study has been published in the journal frontiers in microbiology which indicates that four new strains of bacteria have been found on the station that were previously unknown to science it's thought that these could be used to help grow plants during long-term flights in the future although the idea of new bacteria strains just deciding to turn up on a space station does scare the hell out of me yeah that's a little concerning concerning they they try to give it a positive spin like oh yeah we can use it to you know grow plants and i'm like dude i'm thinking um does anybody remember the movie um little shop of horrors by any chance yes that's what i'm imagining what kind of plants these are like these aren't like regular like house plants where you'd like oh you just water them and it's a little flower no this is gonna like eat your face off or something so yeah space plants get some all right (laughs) <laughs> and especially with all the covid stuff that's been going on this year you think any kind of new bacteria you'd just be like no no you're not coming yeah, we down found here this new virus like no 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 yeah. no no we don't Keep want it this up there. just le- just yeah. isolate it and put it away so put, jettison it out like we don't want to yeah, know about yeah. it i got plenty of antibacterial gel here we'll just send that up exactly exactly <laughs> like let's not met we found out how this ended like don't we don't want it yeah. we we don't want it and finally, uh, Blue Origin have announced that they're going to use their new Shepard spacecraft to start simulating moonlight gravitational conditions in 2022, uh, next year, not very long from now. Uh, normally, to s- simulate these conditions, uh, parabolic flights are used, but they only give a few seconds of lunar gravity at a time. But Blue Origin will use a RCS, sorry, reaction control system, to provide at least two minutes at a time. It's a fully reusable rocket system, and NASA are keen to use this technology to prepare the astronauts for future Artemis missions and to test technologies while closer to Earth. I think this is pretty cool. That is pretty cool, yeah, because I keep thinking of, um, I was talking to Al Warden, I dropped that like real casually, like I was just (laughs) chatting with Al Warden, and I know they had to do a lot of parabolic flights back in the day, because that's all they had. They didn't have anything super sophisticated, like blue origin back then and uh i think they set the record they did like some insane number of parabolas like i don't think he threw up either which is kind of incredible (laughs) but um he was basically saying like they would try to simulate it so you could do similar lunar tasks basically but it was kind of kind of but not really close but it was the best thing they had i think it's also really interesting that uh this it's the kind of thing that we might experience. Yes. You know, with space tourism becoming a thing, why not? Why not? Yeah, maybe not you and I, Emily, but uh, I I think that this adds a whole other dimension to what space tourism can be. And the idea of going up and experience what moon gravity could be like is another string to that bow 
for some point in the future. Anyway, the, there's plenty of news today. So, well, as always, I will put all the links and videos in our show notes and on our website, which, for those of you who don't know, is spaceandthingspodcast.com. Last week, we managed to talk to Teasel Muir Harmony to discuss her new book, Operation Moonglow, A Political History of Project Apollo. We also got to discuss her role as curator of the Project Apollo collection at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. It's not like a dream job. Anyway, I loved reading this book. Absolutely loved reading this book. So uh, without any more gilding the lily, here is our interview with Teasel Muir Harmony. Welcome, Dr. Teaselmuir Harmony. Thanks so much for joining us on Space and Things. Uh, I'm not going to lie, you've been top of my list of people I wanted to have on since we started because I think you have the best job in the world. Uh, <laughs> but before we get to that, I would really like it if you could just tell us the origins of how it came to be that you wrote your new book, Operation Moonglow, A Political History of Project Apollo. Sure. Sounds great. Yeah. So I have been interested in the history of astronomy and space for quite some time. And I was um, I was working on another project in, in the National Archives, going through documents. And I requested a few extra folders that day, I had ex- some extra time. And I came across sort of what became the sort of seeds and beginning of this, this larger story in this book. Um, and basically what I found that day was this um, report on an exhibition in Japan of John Glenn's Friendship 7 spacecraft. So this is the spacecraft that was used to make the first American orbital space flight in 1962. And the description of this exhibit just really, uh, I I found quite surprising um, and notable because people would wait in line for hours and hours just to walk by the spacecraft. Um, There were so many people uh, at the exhibit, they had to they had to go up nine flights of stairs uh, across the roof of this. Uh, it was in a department store in downtown Tokyo, um, and then down nine flights of stairs just to walk by it. And it was five hundred thousand people, I believe, in three or four days. It was incredible numbers for an exhibit. And um, I wanted to learn more. And you know, what was the larger context of this exhibit? Why why did the U.S. send the spacecraft abroad shortly after its flight? Um, what were people waiting in line for? Why are they so excited? And and so I just started digging deeper and deeper and found out that um, there's there's a lot more to the story. Um, it was part of a larger, larger exhibit and a larger U.S. initiative to advance the country's foreign relations interests in that, at that particular moment in history. Now, I have actually learned a hell of a lot from this book. Uh, for example, I'd never even heard of the United States Information Service before, and they're a pretty big player in this in this book because essentially they they ran the show around the world in, in getting information out about the, the space program. So did you know about them before you were doing your studies, or did it all come out around that time? I started learning about the U.S. Information Agency, or USIA, about that same time, um, the documents that I, I was just mentioning were in State Department uh, in, in their collection, the State Department collection. And there was a lot of overlap. So that was sort of a window onto this larger story about the USIA. Um, but it's not surprising. I think most people probably haven't heard of it um, because it no longer <laughs> exists. And um, it was subsumed into the State Department in 1999. So a lot of the activities are still carried out by um, the U.S. government. It's just 
it's just done as part of the State Department now. And so um, that's that's part of the reason why we don't probably talk about the USIA as much today. And, and while I really enjoyed learning about them, the other aspect of your book, which uh, which caught me by surprise, is the hero of this story, more so than anyone else, seems to be Frank Borman. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if that was intended. I, I hadn't thought of that, but I like I like that uh, that interpretation. He's the hero of a few books that I've read, where I'm like, "Whoa!" Like you weren't expecting that, but he shows up and saves the day. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, I I really do believe that he's one of the most underrated astronauts, anyway. But but in this book, we learn all about the role he played after the Apollo Eight mission, where as the commander, he was sent all around Europe to ease attentions and improve relationships with certain countries. Before Nixon took on his own tour just a few weeks later, um, I'm I'm wondering if when you were researching the book, there were specific astronauts or, or perhaps even other people who really excelled at, at this space diplomacy, mm-hmm. um, who perhaps don't get the credit they deserve. Well. I- I think Frank Borman was remarkable. I mean, you make a good point. And that was some of my favorite. Uh, the, the chapter on the Apollo 8 mission is one of my favorites in the book. And I love working on it. Um, and I was lucky enough to speak to um, Borman for this book as well. And his insights about the importance of spaceflight within diplomacy, within this larger Cold War context, are, are quite remarkable. And he really understood his role as an astronaut in terms of duty to his country and service. And he has such a a strong sense of the importance of national service that I think is quite inspiring. So it's um, I love hearing interviews um, with him and reading his own book and reading interviews and anything related to Frank Borman, because I think he's he's a very interesting uh, person and he articulates the importance of uh, the Apollo program within this larger geopolitical context. Um, so he, he stands out um, and. Uh, I would say, and he he's also had an interesting relationship to, to President Nixon, and Nixon really trusted him, wanted him actually to stay on at the White House, but um, Borman wanted to move on to other things. Mike Collins, who was the command module pilot of um, Apollo 11, is he has uh, he's been wonderful to speak with uh, over the past few years about this topic, and um, has great hilarious stories that are also always very very insightful. Um, but beyond the astronauts, um, I, I also got to speak with a number of people that um, I wish I could have even highlighted more. Uh, and one of them is Simon Borgen. So he was the science advisor for the USIA. And his, his background was in journalism. And um, he traveled with the astronauts on the world tours. And he was an, played an important role in, in helping them figure out how to connect with audiences, what to say, and uh, had sort of a really good intuition for that type of work. So uh, he was another person that I loved th- uh, the opportunity to speak with. Now, you've stated this before. I think you you said this, um, you know, Apollo. I, and I think we all know this. Apollo really wasn't for scientific reasons. <laughs> um, do you think that was kind of I don't know how to put it like a flaw? Do you think Apollo was kind of flawed in that it didn't really consider science until the last few missions or? Do you just think that was necessarily for the time? And does that have any residences for like perhaps future space flight? What did you think? I, d- I don't think it's a flaw. And I think it is. Um, it's really revealing in terms of um, why and how we support um, scientific programs. And I think it's important to recognize the various types of motivations that go into uh, supporting science. And I, and I don't think that that's a problem. I think that Apollo did 
achieve um, some great things when it came to our understanding of the moon and the and our solar system. And um, we're still learning from Apollo and uh, from the, the samples that were collected. And so um, there's a lot of great work there. And, and the fact that Kennedy got behind it, uh, Congress was able to fund it um, because it also served these other interests. I don't I don't see that as a problem. I just think it it gives us sort of a model or an example of how to think about science and science funding and um, the mm -hmm. various roles or um, ways that science can serve society. So Apollo serves society both by teaching us about the moon, but then also by advancing U.S. foreign relations interests, by uh, winning hearts and minds around the world. And um, especially if you put it in comparison to uh, things like <laughs> hard power and fighting war or something like that. I think yeah. um, there's there's a so many great benefits that can be observed from that kind of investment in a country investing in that kind of large scale uh, program. Some of the narrative in Moonglow uh, occurs against the backdrop. Uh, it's kind of obvious to anybody who's studied that era, uh, the 60s and 70s, that, you know, there was a lot of U.S. and overall, I mean, international civil unrest um, which is something, unfortunately, we've seen a lot in the last year or so. Do you think that Artemis or maybe an analogous program, like, for example, what we just saw with um, Perseverance, I guess, do you think that can help us similarly as Apollo did? Because I remember watching the Apollo 11, the, the IMAX film, and you notice for that, you know, there's so many different people at the press site at Kennedy Space Center, but you notice when... You know, it, it launches, everybody is just quiet and they're all united in that moment. So do you think uh, kind of if, if we have a moment like that, we could, you know, briefly maybe put our differences aside? I, I would hope that there that space continues to be sort of this vehicle to unite people and um, to to engage people and help people sort of look up to something, you know, greater and higher. But I, I will say with um, the recent Perseverance landing, I found it interesting how much of the conversation took in uh, the, the situation in Texas into account. And I, I can understand why it did. And I, and I think it was very similar to what was going on during the Apollo era and Apollo 11 and questions about, you know, problems on Earth and investments in space exploration. Um, but it was also I also saw quite a bit of mention, like maybe we should just have NASA run everything. <laughs> um, I think that, uh, you know, a society should be able to both, you know, pursue space exploration and fix problems on Earth. Um, and I think that we can, um, especially today, I think that we're sort of uh, more aware and probably better suited um, to make space more equitable, to be more inclusive and to, to find different ways to engage people in space exploration, uh, sort of various approaches to it. And I often get asked about my engagement with, with space or, you know, inspiring people to go into STEM fields, which I think is great, but you know you can also participate in space by being a historian like me, or um, being a lawyer, or being an enthusiast. Or there are so many different ways to engage. And I think that moving forward, the more we do to um, think about what inclusivity means and how to promote it, and that space can be even more sort of relevant to what's going on Earth and and help shift some of these issues in in society. Hopefully that addresses that question. No, it answers the question because, yeah, I was kind of thinking along the same lines around when Perseverance landed. Everybody was like, well, that's nice. They landed a rover, but we can't fix the power grid. And I'm like, oh, boy. 
Yeah. Now, uh, we have some patrons, and there's a question that one of them had, which I think is relevant here. Don Irwin uh, said, uh, what What are your thoughts on commercial and government relationships for ex- for the exploration of Moon and Mars? Uh, does Is there anything that compares with, with what happened in the 1960s with what is happening now? Well, I think that the, the current relationship between um, government and industry raises some fascinating questions or issues moving forward in terms of who gets credit. And um, I think during the Apollo era, it's worth mentioning that hundreds of thousands of people worked on Apollo and a huge percentage of those, over 90% of those worked as contractors and subcontractors in private industry. And so there was, and always has been when it comes to American spaceflight, a really important essential relationship between the government and industry. And so that hasn't changed, um, but the nature of that relationship has changed over time. And I think what you see today is a greater sort of visibility of a lot of the contractors and subcontractors and and sort of a sharing of the accomplishment in a way that you didn't get as much in the 1960s. And, and that raises questions for then who gets credit for uh, the different missions and different accomplishments. And um, when you have... Um, uh, sort of a commercial company taking care of every sort of stage of a mission, you know, you have the rocket and the spacecraft and the spacesuits and all, all of those things. Is that an American com- accomplishment? Um, even if it's funded by, uh, by uh, American taxpayer dollar, is it a, an American accomplishment? Can it be used for American prestige or is it lending prestige to that, that company? Is it a combination? I, I don't quite know, but I do think that that, this idea of of image and prestige is going to matter moving forward, especially because um, sort of large scale, expensive human spaceflight programs in particular have um, relied on national investment. That's not necessarily always going to be the case, but uh, historically, they're so expensive, it requires these types of programs to be a national priority. Will they be a national priority if a nation's not getting as much credit for it? I, I don't know. Um, I mean, there are other benefits and perhaps that's not going to be the rationale behind those types of missions. So I just think it's a it's a shifting landscape. I don't completely know, but I think it'll be interesting to watch because it is um, it is a different type of relationship. And so we could see quite a bit of change. Yeah, this is a this is a fascinating. I wasn't expecting our discussion to go here at all. So thank you for this. Um, I want to go back to to Operation Moonglow briefly, and the fact you brought up Michael Collins because this is how I found out about you through Michael Collins. So I was in Washington D.C. Uh, as part of a trip I had for um, the. 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, and there was an event at George Washington University. Uh, about space diplomacy, in which you were interviewing Michael Collins. Now, this was one of those most amazing events I've ever been to. I had such a great time. Uh, and while I was there, obviously, I got the program notes, and and you were in it, and it said that you were the, curate, the curator of the Apollo project uh, for the Smithsonian. I was like, wow, what a job. And then <laughs> there you are interviewing Mike Collins. Now, Mike Collins has, has the most wonderful outlook when it comes to diplomacy obviously worked for the state mm-hmm. department and the smithsonian as well so uh, he kind of does uh, combine those two things and i was wondering if you had a favorite story of mike collins from his diplomatic time 
which you think is worthy of, of being shared here? Oh, it's it's hard to pick um, because he, I can't do it justice because he has such a great sense of humor. <laughs> um, I can't really capture uh, how well he tells stories, but I encourage everyone to listen to his stories because they're they're so well told. And his book is one of my favorites. Um, but I I love his point about how and this was important to me. And I start off my book with it. I end my book with it. But when when um, the Apollo 11 crew finished their mission and then they, they traveled around the world um, and as Nixon's representatives. But he said what really impressed on him was that instead of people saying you did it or you Americans um, landed on the moon, they said they said instead that we did it and that that idea of we um, as human civilization uh, did it as opposed to a particular nation or a, a particular group of people um, really impacted the astronauts quite strongly. And I think um, it really spoke so well to and captured the importance of the Apollo program within global history and the ways that the first moon landing wasn't just an American accomplishment. It was really something that was much much more sort of weighty and significant in terms of world history. And, and so I love that story. I, he, he's told it a number of times about, you know, we did it. And I think that's probably my, my favorite uh, Mike Collins story. Yeah, ab- absolutely. It always inspires me when you hear him talk about that as well. Um, it's, I kind of feel that it's a, it's a part of the astronaut story, which more people should hear, you know, the way they felt on those world tours and, and their their thoughts afterwards. Often people focus on what they achieved rather than what they felt when they came back. And he he phrases it so well and it's so eloquent in, in how he says it. But let, let's let's now get on to this dream job that you have. Um, how, how does one end up looking after the Apollo artifacts uh, for the Smithsonian? Well, I, w- I will also just say that that day that you you um, were in D.C., that was also like the dream day. And um, I concocted this idea for a program. Um, I was talking to the State Department. They wanted to do something related to space diplomacy. And I thought, well, hey, maybe, maybe <laughs> we can focus on Apollo and maybe we can ask Mike if he would join us. And then Buzz Aldrin ended up coming and Charlene Bolden and Ellen. So it was just um I, it's like a, it's a such a high point. Uh, it was a crazy lineup, that's for sure. It, it was so lucky. It was also the only public appearance of the two of them together for the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. Yeah, because that was quite lucky and also a surprise. But there, there's more to that yeah. story because um, Buzz Aldrin actually showed up while I was on stage, and we didn't know for sure if he was coming. And so it was, uh, it was like, <laughs> it was quite a yeah. day, very memorable. But um, but about the job, and you know. Um, more broadly. So um, I studied the history of science and technology. I did I spent a lot of years in grad school uh, doing my master's and my PhD in that area. And all the while, I was also really interested in museum work as well. And so I had, a, I had actually had an internship and then a job at the Smithsonian uh, after college, uh, sort of got a feel for history of science and loved it, and then con- continued to study it. And then it just so happens that in grad school, I focused on Apollo for my dissertation, which my current book is based off of, and had some great opportunities in graduate school to focus on Apollo because my advisor wrote a book on Apollo, the uh, history of Apollo computing. And then there were a lot of people in the um, the Boston-Cambridge area who were involved in the Apollo program that I got to meet there. So it was pretty, pretty lucky. And then and then the position opened up at the Smithsonian um, and I started off uh, as a more um, general curator and then the curator of the Apollo program left and I took over in the 
fall of 2018. So just in time for the anniversary. So it was a, quite a whirlwind, um, but it yeah. is, it's an incredible collection and um, such a privilege to get to to uh, take care of those artifacts. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I have so many questions about what that must be like. But you actually have another book uh, called Apollo to the Moon, uh, History in 50 Objects, uh, which looks at this very role of, of your life and uh, where you've taken 50, that's uh, what it says on the tin, you've taken 50 objects from within the Smithsonian collection and talked about them and the history of them. Um, now, we had another question from one of our patrons. This one's for Lauren, uh, who, whose uh, son Nick is a, uh, is an avid listener, uh, and uh, and and they would like to know uh, what your favourite item is within the Smithsonian collection. Both both something perhaps uh, big or maybe something that's a little bit more obscure as well. Yeah, it's 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 hard because you know it's like what people say about their kids. It's really hard to pick a favourite. Um, but I do I do have a few that I I think are are quite special. And one of my favourites is um, this. Uh, these pieces of the Wright brothers airplane that Neil Armstrong took with him to the moon. And as someone who works with artifacts and thinks material cultures, um, an important part of our lives, something that we should preserve. Um, I, I think people's relationship to artifacts and objects is, um, is important to pay attention to anyways. Um, so Armstrong took these pieces of the Wright brothers airplane, um, a little piece of wood and, and some fabric with him to the moon and, um, it really knit together both the first American flight and then the first American landing on the moon and in a, in a way that shows the importance of artifacts within our experience. And, and so to me, that really resonates. I love that. I love that artifact. Uh, but I, I could go on. And it was so it was so difficult choosing just 50 objects. I did it for the 50th anniversary. Um, so that's why that I chose that number. But there are thousands um, that I had to choose from. And it was a difficult selection because each individual artifact, you can really dive into their history and it, the whole and a whole world opens up. Yeah, I have that problem. I'll go to the Smithsonian website because sometimes I'll read about um, a specific. Oh, my God, I'm going to get dinged. A specific, like specific Skylab artifacts that I'm interested in. I'm going to get dinged by Dave. Sorry, but um, I'll be looking up and I'm like, God, there's so much, you know, that I wasn't even really aware of. So, yeah, I could spend forever on that website. I have done. Uh, I have a, a, a question, which is also actually a good follow up. And this is from another one of our patrons. This is from Amar. He said, uh, what is an aspect of the Apollo missions that you love, which you wish was talked about more, even within spaceflight circles? I think I mean it's a it's a tough one, I, and I'll just what comes to mind initially is I there's there's been some interesting work on uh, astronaut photography, some really great great um, studies and um, about Earthrise and the blue marble, but I think also the the television the the role of television within spaceflight is really really key, and um, that's one area that I think deserves more attention, and uh, how closely NASA and the U.S. government worked with Intelsat to ensure that the first lunar landing, for instance, would be a live global television broadcast. Now, this is the this was on a scale like an un, unseen scale. I mean, you had um, people around the world watching something in unison, hundreds of millions of people. This was a brand new experience at that time. And and I like to point out that, yes, humans landed on another celestial body for the first time. And that's, that's huge. And then there's also this thing where people came together um, to watch an event in real time, like never before is really uh, a shared experience. And also you have radio and, and um, 
uh, newspaper coverage was an important part of that. But um, in particular, I think the the television broadcasts um, from space are are fascinating. I love I love seeing what the astronauts did, the jokes, the playfulness, the ways they engaged with their audiences, and not just the um, first lunar landing, which is obviously <laughs> deserves quite a bit of attention, but there, there are all the sort of in-between um, broadcasts to, to and from the moon and, and, and their jokes. And I, I just think that that's a, that's a part of um, space that I think could, could use more attention. Absolutely. Um, I, I have a question about the, the, the archives and the vault that you must have access to as part of the Smithsonian job. How much stuff do you have at the Smithsonian which is not on display? Um, is is there like one I mean, big quite, warehouse? <laughs> is it one warehouse or is it scattered all over the place? Well, for so for the Air and Space Museum, we have a few different facilities and we have two museums and we have a lot on display in those two museums, but then we also have additional storage uh, facilities. For the Apollo collection, there are thousands of artifacts um i'm also responsible for skylab too and apollo is just <laughs> <laughs> sorry once, once things open up we can we can go around some of the see some of the skylab artifacts that would be um, awesome but wow it's uh we we try to put as much on display as possible but there is uh there's a, just we have an incredible wealth of material but there i should also mention that many of our artifacts are also on display in other museums around the country and around the world um the Smithsonian was really lucky because we set up an agreement with NASA in the mid-1960s. Um, and so we ended up collecting just a huge number of we had all all the command modules, for instance. And so um, we don't we don't keep them in storage. We loan them to other museums um, so that people can see them and we just oversee, uh, oversee them, make sure they're being taken care of and all that. But um yeah, it's thousands, thousands and thousands of artifacts. Yeah, I, I want to see that spreadsheet. As a spreadsheet fan, <laughs> I want. <laughs> I would love to just sit down and just look at your list. Anyway, um, I want to know. We're coming to the end now, but um, what what have you got planned next? Obviously, you've got these two books. Are you planning to do more books, or is your focus now on the museum work? Well, I'm, I'm working on another book with a, a few other people. It's a very different style, and it's um, there'll be news about it some sometime soon. Um, but it's, it's sort of a multimedia project. So I'm excited about that. But then, yeah, uh, thinking about next project. So if there are topics that you're interested in, I, I love research. <laughs> I love writing. I love spending time in the archives. Um, and I love, you know, it feels like detective work almost. And I, it's one of my favorite parts about um, my job. And so um, I've been thinking about, you know, what, what comes next beyond this next project. So if you have ideas, maybe something related to Skylab. I don't know. Please. Yes. Yeah. I I'll help. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the same way. I can go to a research hole about certain topics for like ever. So that, that should be really cool. There's so, there's so many great topics. Um, and so it it's hard to pick, but, um, yeah. that's the exciting part of this process is I get to spend time really looking through everything and seeing, seeing what captures my attention. Yeah. That's kind of the difficult, like I write, I have an NSS blog. I'm not, I feel like I'm very small potatoes compared to what you all do at the Smithsonian. But uh, 
there I literally have a list about a mile long on my phone of like topics I want to write about. And I'm like, I am never getting to all this, you know? So yeah, I totally get it. Hey, even us enthusiasts, we you know people that don't write about it. We have this problem too. Sheer amount of books we have. Yeah, it's hard yep. enough for me just <laughs> getting through my own mini library. But uh, anyway, uh, there's uh, I've got one final question for you. I have one final question for you, uh, Teasel. The, actually, my, I normally always have a question, which is, uh, if you had an Air and Space Museum, what artifact or artifacts would you like in it? But you've kind of got that covered. Uh, so <laughs> my, my final question to you is, as part of a, a bigger topic that we've been talking about a lot, recently which is how do we best inspire the next generation and uh in my opinion the apollo program uh will be the thing that defines this whole era of history uh in, in a thousand years time i think i think in thousands of years time when they look back at this particular time they'll go that was the time they first walked on the moon and how do we how do we make you, the younger generation currently understand that, that happened not that long ago that their grandparents and sometimes their parents may have been alive for that that thing and it was a big deal. How do we do that? Do you have any thoughts? <laughs> um, well, I think part of it is once you start learning about Apollo, uh, it really just, it is so shocking what people are able to accomplish and how they're able to come together and how many individual problems had to be solved, how much ingenuity was involved at every single stage, the coordination of, of hundreds of thousands of people, um, the, the boldness of the goal. It's, um, I think it just takes, a, you just start learning about it and it just opens up and it becomes incredible uh, for kids. I think, um, I can plug another book, which I've been loving, um, actually for everyone, I, I would say, and, um, this is how we got to the moon. I think this yeah. is just fantastic. It's a good one. And I, I, I sent this to my nieces and nephews and um, I love reading it. I think it's a great, it's a great book that um, really goes through, you know, uh, Apollo, the history, what made it, how, how we got humans to the moon and, and how we solved a lot of the, the problems. So it makes it really clear, you know, every single aspect of the mission required, um, really ingenious solutions and, and, and really incredible people, um, focusing their full energies on solving those problems. And so, um, I would say just learning about the program and then books like that, I think are great, great, um, for, for getting kids excited. That's a really good book. So yeah, I, I, I have it right on my desk, like across from me. So yeah, you should, I know it's for kids, but if you don't have it, Dave, you should get it. I'll add it to my list. <laughs> I think it's for everyone. Yeah, it's it's yeah. for everyone. <laughs> yeah, I am still am definitely a big kid, so uh, I take this thing very personally. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, Emily, do you have do you have any other questions? Uh, do you think that uh, German Titov and Frank Borman would have made the best buddy movie of all time? <laughs> <laughs> I would. I would watch it. That's for sure. <laughs> okay. All right. That's all I got. No, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I know that was, everybody's probably like listening to this, like, what is, on? what is Emily on? So yeah. Like you asked a historian this, like, yeah, I did. Sorry. All right. No, I think, no, seriously, this has been a fascinating listen. Thank you. I've just been sitting back and mainly like, wow, this is really cool. Me too. Thank you so much for joining us, Teasel. Uh, hopefully we'll have you on again sometime and uh, good luck with your future projects. Oh, thank you so much. It was, it was uh, such a pleasure to speak to both of you. Hey, uh, world, hold on to your hat. I'm going to turn you upside down. What did you think? Yeah, I, well, I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation and uh, learning more about a job. But also, 
that I can't go on enough about how good this book is, about how much I've learned from it. It's it's told me a complete new side of the Apollo program, uh, which, although I kind of probably was aware it went on, I've never known the details of it. Um, so how did they get the story out to the rest of the world? How was that received? What issues were there? What how, did, how what was the aims of the government within that to try and get the most out of it? And there's some really little wonderful insights into or into all of those kind of things as well. Um, you know, and and we 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 touched on them, those whilst talking to her. It really was just amazing. You know, this this. The Apollo program was so much bigger than just taking everything up and bringing it down. It was how do we get that story out to the world? How do we get those radio broadcasts, that TV stuff? How do we get that out and, and reaching as many people as possible? Yeah, I hate to interrupt you, but then you get into the thing. Okay, so they had all this, you know, this television programming of what was happening. And then it's like, then you get into the idea of ground stations and how they coordinated everything. Absolutely. You know, to get coverage and to get voice and TV and stuff like that. Which is really something, um, I think Dr. Uh, Teaselmuir Harmony mentioned this, um, that she is interested in like ground stations and stuff like that. And I'm like, yeah, I can dig that. I I've been reading a lot about that stuff lately because it's always fascinated me because we really take, um, in my lifetime, we have TDRS, which is the, you know, the tracking data um, relay satellite system. You know, we have all that. I feel like I take the fact that we sort of have coverage of that stuff for granted, you know, because back in the day it was mm. like, okay, we're going to be out of um, communications for a while because we're passing, we're in between like ground stations. And it's like, you don't think about that. The only time I thought about that really, if it was like, and I was like, holy crap, you know, I didn't really think about that factor was I, I was talking to Joe Kerwin. I just dropped his name like, oh yeah, I was just talking to... <laughs> Joe Kerwin, like, we were eating a sandwich together at a gas station once in Mississippi. Or, like, what the hell? I'm kidding. No, it was at an astronaut scholarship foundation event. I hope the Kerwins are not listening. They'll probably be like, uh, we're, what? Um, no, I was talking to Kerwin years ago, and I was like, and he was talking about the EVA he did with Comrade to fix the um, solar panel, and he was talking about you know, there were times where they got out of range with the ground, so they didn't have communication. So they did that insane EVA sometimes without being able to talk to anybody. That's nuts to me, because nowadays yeah. you wouldn't probably have that. And we're so used to being able, like, I could talk to you any time of the day I wanted. It's you so, know? Yeah, absolutely. Isn't that crazy? Absolutely. And and there's the other side of it as well, which is in order for those ground stations to exist, there was the political ramifications of that. And uh, and there's some of these countries weren't that stable. So there was the whole United States Information Service uh, job of making sure that those countries were stable enough or, or appreciated the program enough that that the, the locals weren't going to come and storm the place and, and, and keep everything in check. So all of this is in that book. It's really fascinating, as was that interview. And if you enjoyed it, there's more to it. There's a, there was a little bit I had to cut out for, the, for this podcast. Uh, and you can watch the whole thing unedited on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash space and things. Uh, and there's other things going on there as well. You could have helped submit questions for our future guests. So please do go and get involved over there. But... What a wonderful, wonderful guest that was. Uh, thanks again to Dr. Teasel, your harmony. All right, you are go for TLI. Over. Roger, stand. We're go for TLI. 
that's all we have time for this week. Uh, thanks again for your support. And we're in the middle of planning the next couple of months' worth of shows. Uh, we're going to continue to try and bring you the very best that we can. But if you have any ideas uh, for shows or, or topics you think we should be covering, please do get in contact. Uh, thanks again to everyone for listening. And thanks to those of you who have clicked that share button or to those who have bought some merchandise or donated. Uh, it, it really does make a huge difference and means the world to us. Uh, but as always, we ask you to remember that in space, no one can hear you stream. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.